Now, the third chapter of Second Peter basically divides itself into two portions. Uh, we might uh, describe it this way, that the first 13 verses, Peter exposes the scoffers. He's going to talk about, by the way, this is a prophecy. When he says that in the last days and uh, that there will be scoffers, that's a prophecy that we're seeing fulfilled before our very eyes. I don't think we've ever lived in quite as cynical and scoffing of a generation as we live in today. I mean, the mantra for most of humanity is, if I can't see it, if I can't experience it, I refuse to believe it. Now, because we have grown up sort of in this age, and even those that have a little snow on top, I mean, you've grown up in this age too. And because of that, I think sometimes we think that that's normal. Uh, but in fact, that's been the exception in the human experience. I mean, up until the last maybe about 100 years, uh, mankind just took for granted that there were things that were beyond the pale of what their senses could experience. It was a given that there were things that they could not experience and sense with the physical. Uh, materialism and secular materialism and humanism is an invention basically of the late 1800s, but it has come into vogue throughout the 1900s and it's pretty popular today. And, uh, you know, that's an exception in human history. I think it's important we note that simply because those that are secular humanists would have us believe it's not an exception. They'd have us believe that everybody always lived this way, that everybody always had this cynical attitude towards anything that was outside the realm of their personal experience. But that has not been the case. That is a unique quality of this day that we live in of scoffers. As we look at these first 13 verses in, in the first portion, they divide themselves into two basic categories. Uh, he begins first off in the first four verses that we've read talking about their insistent denial of the Lord's return. And then in verses 5 through 13, he talks about their ignorant denial of the Lord's return. But as we look at these, it begins with a bit of a personal note. And we see Peter's purpose is mentioned in verse number 1. Now, if we ever needed to wonder if there was a book of First Peter, Second Peter answers it pretty quickly because he says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. What was Peter's design in writing these? It was to stir them up. Uh, you know, kind of like, and you've seen, I'm sure, at times, uh, you know, uh, in an old pond as uh, sediment and things begin to settle on the bottom and something will come along and they'll stir all that up and it rises up to the top and it becomes visible. Peter says there's some things lying dormant in us, some truths that we have once known and, and held precious and dear. Peter says, I don't want you to forget those things. I want to stir these things up within you. And then notice his point is made in verse number 2. Uh, what is he trying to stir up? He says, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So in other words, Peter is saying this, I'm not exposing or revealing new truth to you, but rather I'm just trying to help you to remember some things that you used to know. You know, Vance Havner once said that folks don't need a new thing. They need something that's so old that it seems like a new thing. And that's true. I mean, listen, there's always going to be some new book. There's always going to be some new discovery coming out. But there, the, what we have, we have in this Bible right in front of us. And if we'll be mindful of those things, if we will have remembrance of those things, then it'll be sufficient to produce in us the life that would glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And he basically says this. Notice it's an anticipated denial. Peter says, I know there's coming a day when men will reject the truth of the Lord's 
soon coming. Of course, we're living in that day. Uh, to some degree, and by the way, you'll find this to be true as you study the prophecies, the Word of God. But oftentimes, it's not that they, in some of them, one second they're not there, and another second they are there. But oftentimes, in prophecies that concern the character of an age, we find them to be progressive. For instance, you know, every generation, probably since Paul ever put pen to paper, has looked at the passage that he writes to Timothy when he says, This know also that in the last day perilous times shall come. And have looked at the perils of their world and thought, Boy, we're living in perilous times. If the Lord tarries His coming, i got news for you, it's only going to get more perilous. But can I say that it's perilous enough right now for Jesus to come back? And in the same way, there's always been a spirit of cynicism towards the Word of God, but never like it is today. Just the utter abhorrence and disdain towards the Word of God, and particularly towards the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there was a day when it was sort of similar, and we'll talk about it here in a little while, while Noah was preparing the ark. But the cynicism of today surpasses even that cynicism. The utter disdain for this idea that there's a real God, that God loves us, that God's interested in humanity, that He sent His Son to die for us, and that culminating in the truth that that Son is returning again is something that is hated in this day that we live in. But Peter notes the fact that what he's going to remind them of are some things the prophets have said, and there are some things that have been revealed divinely through the apostles and, of course, through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying there's no new truth here necessarily. I just want you to remember these things. Can I just say this by way of exhortation and application? It's good for us to be stirred up to remembrance because we're so prone to forget. There's not a one of us in this room that doesn't know Jesus is coming back. But uh, it's a little harder to find folks that live like Jesus is coming back. We know it, man. We've got a head knowledge. I mean, there's nobody in this room, If I uh, probably, I would guess, if I was to take a poll and say, do you believe that Jesus is coming soon? I bet you everybody in this room probably would raise their hand and say, yes, sir, I believe Jesus is coming soon. But oftentimes when we look at our calendars, they're filled with a bunch of nonsense that won't amount to anything if Jesus was to come back today. I'm saying this, that if we really believe this, John said it this way in First uh, John chapter 3, he said, every man that hath this hope in himself, talking about that we'll see him one day and we'll be like him. Every man that hath this hope in himself purifieth himself even as he is pure. I think one of the great differences between the apostolic church, and I don't mean the, the mess down the road here, I'm talking about the church that the apostles founded and the church in the apostles' day. One of the marked differences between that church and the church today is they had a real effectual belief in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talked to the church at Thessalonica and exhorted them to wait for the appearing of God's dear Son. Certainly everybody except maybe Peter, because Peter knew he'd die before the Lord returned. All the other apostles looked expectantly towards the Lord's soon coming. They weren't waiting for something to happen in Israel. They weren't waiting for something to happen with the UN or, 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 or you know, a new... I mean, they just knew that Jesus had promised that he was returning soon, and it affected their life in a profound way. So we see it's an anticipated denial. But then in verses 3 and 4, and he really gets to the heart and the meat of the matter, we notice it's an antagonistic denial. And notice first off their ridicule is exposed in verse number 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust. Let me say this, that the Holy Ghost knew exactly what he was doing when he used that term scoffers. He could have used the term doubters, but doubters and scoffers are not necessarily the same thing. He could have used the term seekers or searchers possibly after this truth. But the term seeker or searcher is not synonymous with the term scoffer. 
You see, they have no real desire to know truth. They have only the desire to mask their their illicit desires and their illicit lusts through a ridicule, through a disdain for the truth of God's inspired word. They're scoffers. They merely mock. Let me say this, that while I don't want to dissuade you from walking through a door, if God opens it for you to be a witness to some of these people, understand that they're not going to play by the same rules that you have to play by. They don't believe in absolute truth, and even if they did, they wouldn't care what the absolute truth was. And so while you're grasping to have some sort of intellectual and, and scriptural integrity, they'll just leapfrog from various view to various view and various point to various point. You know why? Because their desire is not to know truth. It's to scoff at you. It's to make light of the Lord's second coming. Their ridicule is exposed. But notice this, their rottenness is exposed. I, I like the way he says that. He says, walking how? After their own lusts. You know, that's why folks have such a problem with the second coming is because uh, there's a judgment coming after the second coming. They're walking after their own lusts. At the end of the day, they want to live life on their terms, and they are loath to believe that Christ would come back, that there'd be a judgment seat they'd have to stand at one day. i got news for them and news for you and news for me too. Christ is returning. There is a judgment seat coming, so we better walk circumspectly and not as fools. We see their rottenness exposed. Then notice their reasoning is exposed. Why do they say this? Well, in verse number 4, what are they saying? Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Let me say this, that not only is that a foolish presumption, because just because things have never been any different, that doesn't mean they never can be any different. Just because God hasn't done something, that doesn't mean God isn't going to do something. But it's also a false ideal. All things have not continued as they were since the creation. In fact, God's judgment has been poured out on humanity as a whole at least one time, but then in a more local situation and circumstance on multiple occasions. Listen, empire after empire has been ground to dust underneath the grinding wheel of God's judgment. But they're willingly ignorant of this. They don't want to believe that. That's why you have such trouble witnessing and debating and arguing with them, because they don't want to believe it. And I'll tell you this, you can't make anyone believe something they don't want to believe. That's has to be a will and a desire and openness, an open-mindedness. It's funny, you know, they talk about how narrow-minded we as Christians are, and yet when we stand in the public arena and try to debate and discuss things in an intelligent way, we just get shouted down by their barbaric mob mentality. They have no desire for real truth. They're scoffers. And their reasoning is flawed. It's false. It's not true. We see that there is an insistent denial of the Lord's return. And then notice what he says in verse number 5. There is an ignorant denial of the Lord's return. They are willingly ignorant of two things. Number one, they're willingly ignorant of the Lord's past judgment by flood. I said a moment ago that it's a flawed mentality because everything has not continued the same as it did from creation. And a good example of that is found in verse number 5. For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Now, why does he say that? Well, notice the flood tides restrained. When God created uh, the uh, earth, it was covered. The whole face was covered uh, by waters, the book of Genesis teaches us. And then God commanded that the, the earth would rise, that the seas would abate, and uh, there was a hidden boundary that was put there. 
And, you know, it's interesting. We were just down uh, uh, at the Outer Banks, and most of y'all was asking me questions, stuff about that. And when we were down at the Outer Banks, you know, the tide twice a day would, would try to creep in on the dry land. And they have big sand dunes there. Uh, if you if you want to go to the Outer Banks to see real pretty, flat, beautiful beaches, don't. Because that's not the Outer Banks. It's a bunch of sand dunes. And uh, this little sandbar six miles out into the ocean is protected by these piles of sand on either side. But twice a day, the, the ocean, I mean the ocean, think about the magnitude, the ocean would begin to creep in. And yet somewhere in that sand, God has drawn an invisible line. We were fishing, and uh, we, we had good fishing Monday night and Tuesday morning and Tuesday night, and uh, pretty good fishing Wednesday morning. But long about Wednesday afternoon, man, a, a, a wind came out of the north, and man, it was cold. And when it did, all of a sudden, those waters just began to boil. And waves began to mount. I'm talking about surfing waves, you know. I'm not just talking about little waves. I'm talking about big waves began to, to mount up and began to crash themselves against the beach there. But, you know, as we stood there in these mighty waves trying to crash in on this little island and we flung a line out into the surf and tried to catch a fish, it was interesting to see that no matter how much power and might those waves had, there was still that line that God wouldn't allow him to cross. Isn't it amazing? Something as powerful as the ocean, and yet by God's word it is restrained. By God's commandment, when he issued forth that commandment to say, See, ocean, go no farther, it's not been broken. There's the occasional tsunami, there's the occasional wave, there's the occasional flood, but still the oceans retreat back into their habitable bounds that God has placed them in. But then what happened? Now, for all of human history, the waves had not gone beyond that. But look at verse number 6. Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. God all of a sudden erased that line just for a few days and allowed the ocean to creep in on dry land and the entire world was covered and flooded. Now, the scoffers are willingly ignorant of this. What is the truth they are willingly ignorant of? That at one time, God did something by judgment that had never been done before. Just because it had never happened heretofore, that didn't mean God could not exercise judgment through that manner. And in the same way, uh, Peter's going to go on to talk about the judgment upon this world by fire that's coming. That's never happened yet, but that doesn't mean it won't happen. In fact, we might say this, that the Word of God is a more sure thing than human history and experience is. Just because humanity's not experienced it, that doesn't mean God can't do it. We see the flood tides released. And then notice this, we see not only the Lord's past judgment by flood, but we see the Lord's predicted judgment by fire. Now, you remember when the waters uh, began to abate and, and uh, Noah gets off the ark and God puts a bow in the sky. And that's the promise of God that He's never going to again judge the earth by water. And to this day, when it rains, if it's a pretty day and the sun peaks out, you can oftentimes, around here and around the entire world, you can look up in the sky and see that reminder of God's promise that He will not judge the world by flood again. But God has told us He will judge the world. How's He going to do it? Look at verse uh, number 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. It's interesting that phrase kept in store. It has the idea of, of laying something precious up. 
In other words, we have the promise of God. You know, everybody's losing their mind right now, and 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 I don't want to be too political, just not because I'm afraid of offending you. I'm just sick of politics. Somebody say amen to that, because it's everywhere. But you know, one, one of the major candidates got up and said the greatest threat that we face as a nation is global warming. And uh, I think that's silly. I think most people in here think that's silly. But can I give you a scriptural reason that that's silly? It's found in verse number seven. The heavens and the earth are kept in store, reserved unto the day of judgment. God will judge this earth, and He's not going to let the foolishness of man, the folly of man, rob Him of that day of judgment. It doesn't matter. Listen, go out, buy, buy a V8, a V12, a V65. Drive it until the wheels fall off. It's not going to destroy this earth, because this earth is kept in store. God has reserved it to the day of of judgment. Now, I don't think we ought to be bad stewards. I mean, I, you know, and I'm not trying to imply that. I think we ought to be good stewards of the earth that God has blessed us with, but we, <coughs> excuse me, need not fear that we are going to prematurely destroy the earth because it is, it is, uh, uh it is set up against an appointed day. He says we're to consider this appointed uh, uh, day, and he says that God's fire is already burning. Look at it again. He says, uh, uh, uh kept or reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In other words, the fire is already kindled. God is just waiting to unleash it. Now, at the risk of sounding cruel, can I say that there's a comfort in that truth? Because sometimes it gets awful discouraging to see the the wickedness of this world. Sometimes it gets awful discouraging. I mean, things are just crazy. Can somebody say amen to that? Things are just crazy. You look at this world, and and you know, I mean, it just it, it's just it's insane. And I, you know, we were riding in, and me and and mom and dad we were talking about it, and dad was talking about how awful this world is. I said, just be thankful you're seventy, <laughs> amen. <laughs> you know, because there's a lot of it that the Lord won't uh, make you see. I, I'm 28 years old, and my little boy's just two. And I think about how crazy the world's going to be when he gets to be my father's age. But it's comforting to know this that there's never a single act of wickedness, never a single defiance of God's law, but what the judgment fires of God are already kindled and waiting. We see that the fire is already burning, but we see that God's fury is already building. In other words, and notice what it says here very carefully, when it says reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition. That phrase perdition, that word perdition, it's only found just a few times in your Bible. It's used first of all speaking of Judas. It's used again speaking of the Antichrist. But the day that Peter has in view here is uh, the day uh, of the ultimate culmination of God's judgment. We're going to talk about it here in a moment. Uh, It's it's the day of the Lord, just prior to the day of God. And he's talking about uh, at the great white throne judgment when uh, the earth and the heaven will flee away from the face of God. Uh, But what he's saying is this, that this pattern of wickedness that the world has had, uh, the, the betrayal of Judas, the blasphemy of the Antichrist and of his world system, that God's fury is already laid up waiting to fall upon that world system. Uh, you know, we live in what we might call the day of man. I think that's what Paul calls it in the book of 1 Corinthians, the day of man. It's a day when man is judging and God is silent, by and large. I mean, I understand God speaks, and I understand, but it's a day when man is having his day. But it's not always going to be the day of man. The Bible uses that phrase, the day of, in a prophetic connotation over and over and over and over again. Uh, It's also, by the way, not only is it the day of man, but it's also the day of grace. 
when the grace of God is extended to all of humanity, that day of grace will end one day. And uh, the day of Jacob's sorrows is another day that is going to take place in which the nation of Israel is persecuted more than they are even now. Uh, that's described in Matthew chapter number 24. And the day of the Lord is often in view in the Word of God and is here when Peter speaks of it. And that reflects the uh, the day when the Lord will uh, come back in power and in glory and extends all the way from that day until the end of the millennial kingdom. In other words, that's the day when the Lord will dwell visibly on this earth once again. And uh, the day of Christ is mentioned. That's the day when uh, the church is gathered home. Uh, but as he talks about these different days, I think it is worth noting this, that God's calendar is right on time. All these things are planned. All these things are appointed. Peter says we're to consider an appointed day. We're to, verse number 8, consider an approaching day. He says this, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Boy, now let me say this, that's a mouthful. <laughs> we, we could talk about that, we could preach and teach about that from now until Jesus comes back. Uh, we could talk about it until the end of the millennial kingdom and not exhaust the truth expounded there. But can I give you a little known fact that I think you might find interesting that I think will help enlighten this verse? Did you know that in your Bible there is only one time, one time, that the word eternity is found? Does that surprise you? Only one time. Now the word eternal is found quite often. Everlasting is found time and again. But the word eternity is found only one time. The book of Isaiah, the Lord says this, that He is the Lord God that inhabiteth eternity. You see, when we talk about uh, eternal, we're talking about a quality of a, a time frame or an individual or whatever it might be. When we talk about everlasting, we're talking about the same thing. But when we talk about eternity, we're not necessarily talking about a stretch of time or a space of time, but we're talking about the ideal itself of time. We are on a moving continuum, and I'm going to try not to get too deep when I, when I say this, because I, I really want you to grasp what I'm about to say. We're on a moving continuum. That's how we experience life. For instance, uh, you know, just about, you know, 25 minutes ago, uh, we began this class. Now, we can all remember that. I hope you can anyways. Amen. We can all remember that, but we can't go back to that. That's then. Now is now. By the same token, we, we hope to experience tomorrow. I've got things I plan on doing tomorrow. You probably do too. We can look forward and we can plan and speculate. But no matter how hard we try, we can never reach out, grab the future, and pull it into the present. We must experience it on this moving continuum. So there is a past for us, there is a future for us, but the present is all we get to enjoy and all we get to experience. God's not this way. God inhabits eternity. Uh, one, I believe it was a Bible teacher that my father-in-law had said it this way, and this always stuck with me when he shared it with me, that everything, at every moment, is in the immediate presence of God. He is, you know how he describes himself? He says, I am that I am. There's no past to God. There's no future to God. Everything is in the presence of his will. So for us, we look at it and we think to ourselves, boy, the judgment of God is winding along slowly. But here's the problem. The word slowly doesn't mean anything to God. We might say things like this, Boy, it seems like it's taking forever. But the term forever, at least as we use it, doesn't mean anything to God. Everything is immediately in His presence. In other words, by the time you get to tomorrow, God's been there since before the idea of tomorrow ever existed. 
When you look backwards on yesterday, it's still just as much of a today to God as it ever was to us. Everything is in His immediate presence. I don't think the idea behind this verse is to try to get us to do some kind of real sneaky math to see if we can figure out God's secret about when Jesus is returning. I think rather the idea that Peter is trying to convey is this. It may feel like forever to us, and the world may say God's taking forever. God's sure taking His time. Well, God has the liberty to take His time because all time belongs to God. (laughs) Any time that God takes, it's His time. And He can do things in whatever time He chooses to. In other words, God's not ever running late. He's always doing things exactly as He chooses. And if He wanted to somehow make the clock run faster, He could do it. If he wanted to slow it down, has he not done it in the past? He can do all those things. So things are happening exactly as God would have them to happen. We notice that God's mode of living transcends ours. But notice in verse number 9, I like this, man, that God's method of loving transcends ours. So what's the answer? That's good to know that God's not in a hurry and that nothing's going slow on God's timetable. What does it mean? What does it teach me? What does it tell me about God? Verse number 9 tells us, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Now let's pause there and say this, that He is remembering His promise. He's not forgotten all the, the promises that He's going to judge wicked men, that He's going to exalt righteous men, the promise that, that He's made towards us, that we'll dwell with Him in everlasting bliss. God's not forgotten any of those things. He's not slack concerning His promise. Now something about this. You know, promises fade over time. If you don't believe it, try to use an expired coupon. Amen? Promises fade over time. And oftentimes, you know, you'll make promises to somebody and we forget about them. I mean, I've forgotten about a lot of things, you know. I remember a guy told me one time, he, he, he was, I, I was getting ready to tell him something. I said, ah, I forgot what I was going to tell you. It must not have been important. He said, you know, I forget important things all the time. <laughs> that was discouraging. That is, it's gone with me the rest of my life. But, uh, you know, we forget the promises we've made, but the Lord's not slack concerning His promise. You know, I think about, uh, you know, again, uh, when we were out there fishing. I don't know if you've ever fished at the ocean, but uh, you don't or I don't use any kind of bobber or nothing or anything like that. We put a big old pyramid weight on it. We we throw the thing out into the surf, and and uh, then we'll tighten the, the line up, and we get it real tight so that just the slightest little bite or nibble, you can feel it hit that rock. Sometimes, though, like, for instance, when that wind kicked up, uh, oftentimes the wave in the surf is just too much for whatever weight of sinker that you have on there, and that water will begin to push that sinker around. And uh, sometimes you'll, you'll have thrown it out there, and you'll have tightened it up, and everything's just right. And then about ten minutes later, you'll look, and your line will just be bowed out like a big sail in the wind where that, that uh, sinker has been moved around. You know what you have to do? You've got to reel it up and try to tighten that slack in because things change, things move. We live in that kind of world. But guess what? God doesn't live in that kind of world. His promises, if he was the one that threw out that fishing line, it's just as tight today as it was the day that he threw it out. His promises are just as sure today as ever they have been. He is remembering his promise, but he is also revealing his patience. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Can I put something in a little perspective for you? Can I say this, that sin is against the very holy nature of God. God recoils and is repulsed by sin. 
The natural thing for God to do when approached with sin is to judge it, to smite it. That's the reason that the high priest, whenever he would go in on the Day of Atonement, if he had any sin in his life, he'd be struck dead immediately. Because God could not allow sin in his presence. So stop and think about this. The overwhelming and and awe-inspiring power of motivation that his love must have, that God is willing to watch all of the wickedness of humanity and to be patient and long-suffering that those people might come to know Christ. What a God we have. That He would be willing. I, I do not understand. We get outraged by wickedness. you know. I, and I get outraged by wickedness. Man, I see all this nonsense going on in the world. People don't know what bathrooms to use. They don't know what gender they are. They don't know what, what love is anymore. I mean, just everything's so wicked and perverse and twisted up. And it's just sickening sometimes. But has it ever dawned on you that God is even more sickened by it than you and I? You say, what's the difference? Well, He loves those folks more than we do. And He's holding out in long-suffering and patience. Why? That they might have another opportunity to repent. You see, the weak thing would have been for God to judge immediately. And it wouldn't have been an offense to His nature to do so. It wouldn't have made Him less God. But that would have been no great show of power. For God to judge immediately, for He's God. The great show and display of power is that He's long-suffering. That He, I don't know what word to use, I don't want to say He abides sin, I don't want to say He endures sin, I don't want to say He allows sin. But He knows sin, and He hates sin. But He loves sinners so much that He'd give them room and opportunity to repent. What a great God that we have. We are to consider an approaching day. But then notice what he says. We're to consider an appalling day. Verse number 10. says, but the day of the Lord. Now again, that phrase deals with basically everything from the, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It can even encompass the rapture, but particularly the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ all the way down to the end of the millennial kingdom. Uh, and at that point, what the Bible calls the day of God will begin. But that phrase, that's a big phrase. And when Peter talks about it, he is particularly focusing on the judgment, the great white throne judgment that will culminate that age. And he says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. I want you to consider this for a moment. Notice that a nuclear holocaust is foretold. I want to be very careful with what I say here because I don't want you to think that what I mean is man's going to push a big red button and destroy himself. But I want to read this. And I've not done this, I don't guess, the entire time. But I wanted to read this to you because I believe it will give us a little insight. So I want you to bear with me while I read some of this information. The Atomic Age was born at 3.36 p.m. on December 2nd, 1942 under an abandoned and crumbling stadium at the University of Chicago's Stagg Field, where scientists produced the world's first chain reaction. Neutrons split uranium-235 nuclei. Heat and more neutrons streamed from the resulting disintegration. As more uranium-235, uh, or excuse me, as these neutron, neutrons spewed out of the uranium block, they were slowed and split more uranium-235 nuclei. The first faltering, fearful steps had been taken into the nuclear age. 
It was now theoretically possible to manufacture an atomic bomb. The secret of the transmutation of elements had been learned, and this knowledge gave men a destructive capacity of apocalyptic proportions. The war with Germany ended, removing the fear in the West that Hitler might make an atomic bomb first. As soon as the Anglo-American forces secured a firm foothold in Germany, physicists were sent in to see just how far Hitler had advanced with his own efforts. The German nuclear physicists had done surprisingly little. Hitler had long since chased the best brains out of his country in his mad persecution of the Jews. The work on the project went on in the West because Japan was still far from beaten. The prospect of taking Japan island by island, city by city, at fearful cost in human lives spurred on the Americans. The first atomic bomb was exploded at 5.20 a.m. on July 16, 1945. The place chosen for the experiment was an arid wilderness in New Mexico, 50 miles from Alamogordo. An enormous tower was built of 10-inch rails weighing 90 pounds to the foot. When the bomb exploded, the tower vaporized and its debris was tossed seven miles into the sky. Where the tower had stood was a hole 60 feet deep and 5,000 feet wide. For 18,000 feet in all directions, the ground was boiled, fused, or melted into glass. Work on the bomb continued. But by now, the nuclear scientists had become alarmed. It was whispered within the academic community that the military intended to use the bomb on Japan once it was ready. The scientists, however, had opened a door that was now impossible to close. Einstein afterwards said that there seemed to be a weird inevitability about it all. Work continued until two atomic bombs were ready. They were not precisely the same kind. The first atomic bomb to be dropped on a city fell on Hiroshima at 8.15 a.m. on August 6, 1945. The bomb was about 14 feet long and 5 feet in diameter. It weighed less than 10,000 pounds. It was a uranium-235 bomb. The people of the city saw a formation of planes fly overhead, and then a cluster of three parachutes descended slowly toward the earth from one of those planes. It was the last thing many of them saw. At a height of 1,800 feet, the bomb exploded. A city of 350,000 people was virtually leveled. Some 70,000 people were killed instantly, and as many more were severely injured. About two-thirds of the buildings were totally destroyed or damaged beyond repair. Many people died later of radiation sickness. Three days later, after dropping warning leaflets on 47 Japanese cities, a second atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, this time a plutonium bomb. The United States had totally exhausted its atomic bomb arsenal, but that secret was well kept. Japan surrendered, but the atomic age went on. A door had been slammed irrevocably on the past. Life on this planet would never be the same. At 9 a.m. on July 1, 1946, the United States tested its atomic bombs against an experimental fleet assembled in a deserted lagoon at Bikini. Battleships, cruisers, and aircraft carriers alike were sunk or badly damaged. Two miles away, a test ship burst into flames. Some 10 million tons of water, the equivalent of the tonnage of the entire U.S. wartime fleet, were flung two miles into the sky. In August 1949, the Russians exploded their first atomic bomb, and the United States decided to develop a hydrogen bomb. An atomic bomb is a fission bomb, which is made by splitting the atom, but the fission bomb was now to be used as a match to detonate the much greater hydrogen bomb. The sun, which emits energy in uh, changing hydrogen into helium, burns at some 20 million degrees centigrade. Because the A-bomb generates temperatures up to 50 million degrees centigrade, 
It could be used to produce a fusion reaction just like that of the sun by igniting or fusing two of the heavier isotopes of hydrogen. On November 1st, 1952, the United States tested the first hydrogen bomb near Inuitok Atoll in the Pacific Ocean. It tore a one-mile island right out of the Pacific, leaving a hole in the ocean floor 175 feet deep, big enough to hold 14 Pentagon buildings. That one bomb had more force than all of the bombs dropped on Germany and Japan throughout the entire Second World War. That's just a little short description of our entrance into the nuclear age. And consider now carefully what Peter says once more. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. You know, it's interesting, whenever this was written, the Greeks oftentimes, when they spoke of elements, they spoke of earth, air, wind, or earth, you know, wind, water, fire. And that was what elements were to them. That was actually a misunderstanding of what elements really are. Elements are not necessarily just the, the earth, wind, you know, fire, water, but elements are actually the particles. And that word in the Greek actually denotes that. It means a part or a particle of a particular thing. And so the Holy Ghost picked exactly the right word to convey the idea. You understand that a nuclear bomb is, is not a creation. It's a destruction. It's not the creation of energy. It's the unleashing of energy as atoms are split and as that energy begins to explode into the air and begins to light the very oxygen on fire. Whenever Peter says this, that they'll melt with fervent heat. You know that same word is used whenever the Bible says that uh, John the Baptist made this statement about Christ, said, I am not worthy to unlatch it or to unloose the latchet of your shoe. And the word conveys the idea, not necessarily of creating, but of unloosing a raw, mighty power. You say, preacher, what do you believe about that day when God sets the world on fire. This is what I believe. The Bible says this in the book of Colossians, that by Christ, all things consist. And that literally means all things hold together. The reason the stars stay in their course is because of Jesus Christ. The reason the sun hangs in the sky is because of Jesus Christ. And in that day, listen carefully, in that day, when man is left alone without any of the grace and love and compassion of the blessed Son of God, all of creation will begin to unravel. You see, God doesn't necessarily have to cause this. God just has to allow this. And the elements will melt with fervent heat, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. A nuclear holocaust is foretold. But I like this. There's also a new heaven foretold. <laughs> he says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness. He gives a practical exhortation in light of this. He says, in other words, since this is going to happen, since one of these days all this matter, all of these things are just going to burn up. I, listen, I don't just mean your car and your home. I mean the very atoms that comprise our world are going to be destroyed. Seeing that that day is coming, what ought that to do to our lives? Well, he notes a couple things in all holy conversation. Now, that term conversation, as it's used in the 
New Testament epistles over and over again does not necessarily denote the idea of dialect or dialogue, but it has the idea of lifestyle. In other words, it ought to make you live holy, and it ought to make you live godly. We ought to try to be like Him who will never pass away. We ought to try to live according to how the God, the God of all the universe, the God of all creation, the God that will still sit on His throne when the earth is imploding, we ought to try to be like Him and please Him. What folly it is to try to live to please the things of this world when they have a shelf life anyway. What nonsense it is to try to attain to some kind of position or popularity or power in this world or prosperity when all this is going to burn up. Let me tell you, it seems like a long ways away right now. But one of these days, if you know Christ, and I know that I know Christ, and I trust you do too, one of these days, if we know Christ, we're going to sit in the endless day And we're going to look back at this little blip, just this little ever-shrinking speck as the ages begin to wind out further and further and further with no end to the horizon. And ever-shrinking, this little time will be. And we'll ask ourselves, why couldn't I just be patient and godly? Why couldn't I just live for God during that time in a greater way? A practical exhortation is given, but a prophetic expectation is given too. He says, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Now, I told you that, that phrase, day of God. Now, what is the day of God? Wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Now, you say, but wait a minute, preacher, I thought that was going to happen in the day of the Lord. On that one singular day, you'll have the close of the day of the Lord and the beginning of the day of God. Now, you can read it in your own time. I'm not going to take the time to do it. But look sometime in Revelation chapter number 20. What, how does the great white throne judgment begin? It says that uh, John said, you know, I saw a, a throne and, and he that sat upon it, you know, robed in white. And it says, whose fa- from whose face heaven and earth fled away. The next time that the earth is mentioned, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That day when the day of the Lord is closed, when the millennial kingdom uh, an age comes to a close and the great white throne judgment takes place. The day of the Lord will end. But the day of God, that great day of God will begin. You say, what is the day of God? That's what's on the other side of the great white throne judgment. That's a day when there's nothing left on God's calendar. It's just a day when God is all and in all. And it's a never-ending day in which we'll dwell in everlasting bliss with Him. Peter says we ought to be looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. We ought to be living with that in view, not living with all this other nonsense in view. We ought to be living with that in view. And then notice he says this, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. It's interesting that he should say that, because it's almost as though Peter is saying, Look, I don't want you to necessarily look forward to the judgment. Look forward to what's past the judgment. You think about Noah. I'm sure Noah didn't look forward to the flood. But I'm sure that he looked forward to stepping off that ark into a brand new clean world. A world that that Satan had not ravaged yet. And what a day that's going to be. I mean, you understand, we're going to step off (laughs) and we're going to step into a day that Satan will have no claim to. Wickedness won't exist. Pain won't exist. Hurt won't exist. Heartache won't exist. Doubt won't exist. Anxiety won't exist. What a day that's going to be. Peter says, that's what we're looking for. That's what we're looking to. Saying we don't have some weird, sadistic anticipation for the judgment of God. Rather, we're looking for a day when all of this will be washed away, wiped away, 
Let me tell you something. I mean, water may do pretty good, but nothing cleans like fire cleans. And on that day, when the very elements themselves break apart, all of the iniquity is washed away, and the new heaven, new earth is created. I, I can't wait to watch him create it. You know, I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know. I, I don't think he's going to take six days, though. <laughs> but when he creates that, and it's so clean and it's so precious and so new, we've got these glorified bodies that 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 don't know pain. Man, what it's going to be when we step out of that celestial realm and plant foot for the first time on a clean earth. No thorns with no sin. Peter says, I'm looking forward to that day. It's not that I'm looking forward to the judgment, but I'm looking forward to what the judgment will bring and what it's going to produce. We see that Peter exposes the scoffers. He does it pretty thoroughly. And I'm not going to take a lot of time, but let me just walk through his exhortation to the saints. It says, wherefore... Listen, pay attention to those therefores and wherefores in your Bible, because they're there on purpose. When he says wherefore, he's saying because of all this, because we're pilgrims, we're strangers, because it's all going to burn up, because God's promised us something far better on the other side of the great white throne judgment, when all iniquity is washed away. Wherefore, because of all these things, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, notice what he says, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot, and blameless. You know the first thing he says? Because of that, we ought to behave. We ought to behave. We ought to be diligent. It carries with it the idea of pursuing something with singleness of mind. He says uh, that we may be found in him, of him in peace, without spot, has the idea of being without a stain, without a blemish, and blameless, being above reproach. In other words, these truths ought not produce loose living. They ought to produce grace-filled, godly living in our lives. He said that we ought to behave. Verses 15 and 16, he says this, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. The first thing he does is he gives a word of advice. When you get discouraged, just remember, God's given folks another chance. When it gets discouraging because of how wicked this world is, just account the long-suffering of God salvation. And hey, listen, there's a lot of us. We have prodigals out. Right? We have lost loved ones out. When you get discouraged and when you say, man, just how wicked it is, I just, why, why doesn't God just wipe it all away? Just say to yourself, because He still loves my boy, because He loves my girl, because He loves my grandchild, because He loves my spouse, because He loves my, my mother or my father, because He loves them. Just account the long suffering of God's salvation. Listen, we ought to be thankful He didn't bring all this to pass before we got saved. Somebody say Him into that. So God's still saving sinners. He gives us a word of advice. He says a word of admiration about Paul. He calls him the beloved brother Paul. And I, I'd like to say a lot about this, but I don't feel like it's terribly germane to the overall arc of what we've been saying. But suffice it to say this, two things about it. One, we have uh, scriptural uh, verification and validation of the apostleship and of the inspiration of the writings of Paul. That's worth noting. Two, I think there's a great lesson in forgiveness here. Because the last time we heard about Paul and Peter interacting with one another, Paul was rebuking Peter to the face. We withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Many years have passed since then. and Peter didn't allow it to bitter him. He let it better him. And he can say with confidence that Paul is a beloved brother. He talks about Paul the loved apostle. But then he says a word about Paul the learned apostle. And he says this. He says, according to the wisdom given unto him, 
hath written unto you. In other words, he's saying, listen, you know about the writings of Paul. But he gives a little bit of an encouragement and maybe even a little warning about Paul's writings. Notice not only a word of admiration, but a word of admonition. He says this in verse 16, As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. So Peter's saying, Paul's already told you these things. He says, in which are some things hard to be understood. In other words, he notes the depth of Paul's writings. He denotes that some things that Paul writes are difficult. Now, can I say that encourages me? (laughs) I mean, even Peter found him difficult sometimes. Somebody say amen to that. Sometimes, man, I read Paul and I think, man, you know, God's going to have to give me another Bible just to explain what Paul's saying. And I struggle, you know, and there's a lot of them. And actually, in the in the commentary that I was reading, the 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 fellow spends like two paragraphs just listing difficult teachings of Paul and various things that are tough to grapple with and to grasp at. And Peter says, "Look, I understand that he's difficult sometimes to learn, but he points to the danger of their wrestlings with Paul's writings." He says this, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. In other words, he's saying this, and by the way, that term rest has the idea of twisting, bending out of shape. And he's saying this, that with Paul's writings, there were in his day and there are in our day, some that will take those scriptures and twist them out beyond recognition and do so to their own destruction. Now, why did Peter write this? I think there's a few reasons, Peter. I think for one thing, he he wanted to give a closing comment on how he felt about Paul. But I think another reason is this. He wanted to exhort individuals to rightly divide Paul's writings and to do it diligently. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm ending my life. That's what he said earlier on. He said, you know, I'm going to put off this tabernacle. I'm dying. And not long after he wrote this letter, uh, Nero's goons knocked on his door. The clock had run out. The final grain of sand had fallen. And he was hauled off to to a cross to be crucified. And what he's saying is this. As I leave this world, let me exhort you to be a diligent student of all of Paul's writings, but not only of all of Paul's writings, of all the Word of God. You say, how do we know that? Because he says of those that rest with Paul's writings, that wrestle with them, that they not only wrestle with those, but with all the other Scriptures. Maybe this is what Peter's saying. I know you're not going to understand everything, but have faith in the Word of God and keep studying. Stick in. Keep studying. I have people all the time talk to me about, oh, you know, preacher, you've got depth of knowledge and blah, 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 and all that nonsense. They used to say beyond your years, but I've noticed they've quit saying that. I don't know what that means. But, uh, you know, I have people say things like that. And, and uh, you know, as a pastor, I labor in the Word of God. Uh, let me just say this, two things. One, um, there's a lot more of this Bible I don't understand than there is that I do understand. And the more that I study it, the less I understand it. You know, you, that, that seems counterproductive. I understand more, but it seems like I understand less of it. But let me also say this, too, that we'll never learn the Bible by closing our Bibles. Stay in it. Continue to stay. There's probably some things we've talked about in this series that you grapple with, especially when you talk about prophecy. I mean, there, you know, sometimes it's tough to get a timetable in your mind going and to plug passages in where they fit. Don't shy away from that. Listen, there's a lot of folks, particularly in this part of the country, that have that have ran away from the book of Revelation. And what a tragedy that is. 
it's not the book of concealment, it's the book of Revelation. God wants us to study it. He wants us to understand it. The writings of Paul are there for our, for our benefit and for our edification. Stay in the Word of God, Peter says as he closes his life. And don't run from Paul's writings. Don't run from any of the Word of God. Stay in them and continue. As the day of the Lord is approaching, continue studying. He tells them to believe, to, to place their confidence and their time in the Word of God. But then finally he gives them a word and he, he wants them to beware. Verse 17, he says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know, ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. And we might say it this way. Peter says, don't go. Don't walk away from the Bible. Don't walk away from the Word of God. Don't walk off into heresy. You know these things are coming. Can I maybe say it this way, and this might be a little blunt and a little abrupt, but there's not a single one of us in this room that could say that we have excuse. We are without excuse. We know things are only going to get worse. We know that the day of the Lord is approaching. We know that evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse. I mean, listen, uh, things. I promise you, and I'm more convinced of it today than I've ever been in my whole life, it, it, it has become a, a, a theme, a tone in my preaching that the easy days are done. They're over. And things are only going to get tougher. And as they do, don't allow yourself to be pulled away. Because the world's going to try to pull you away. Don't fall off into heresy. You stay right close to this Bible and right close to the teaching of the Word of God. Don't allow yourself to be pulled away. He says, don't, don't grow, but he says this, but do grow, or he says, don't go, but do grow. Verse number 18, he says, but what? Not only don't leave, but he says, as you stay, what are you to do? He says two things. Speaks first off of the Lord's grace. He says, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, you just keep getting closer to God. Uh, grace is always sufficient. Grace is always abundant. Grace is always available to those that know the Lord Jesus Christ. Just continue to grow in grace. You don't listen. You don't have to learn everything by tomorrow. You don't have to have everything figured out. Uh, listen, I'm glad it doesn't say grow in perfection, because I couldn't handle that. But as long as God will st- keep giving grace, then I can keep growing. As long as he'll keep dealing in grace and still dealing grace in my life, I can keep coming back to him and I can keep growing. When I mess up, when I make mistakes, if there's grace there, then I can come back. And it's not on God, it's on me because he's offering grace. So if I'll keep coming back and not walk away from this Bible, walk away from Christ, then I can keep growing in the word of God. And then, you know, it's almost like he was trying to think about the way Paul writes. You know, he's got Paul on his mind. It's like he's saying, man, I just want to, I want to finish one out the way Paul always did. How can I do that? And he says, well, Paul always talked about grace. What was that other thing Paul always talked? Well, he'd always talk about glory. And so he closes this way. He says, to him, be glory, both now and forever. Amen. In other words, Peter says this. At the end of the day, you know what sums it up? Is the glory of God. If we ever need to find a reason, we can always lean on the glory of God. We may not always understand how it is under God's glory. But Peter ends his entire life. Think about how many years had passed since this Galilean fisherman was called by the Savior to let him borrow his boat and to thrust out into the deep waters to let his net down. Well, a lot of years had passed. A lot of things had happened. He says, you know what I think about my life? To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. He says, that's what we're doing. That's what it's all about.